now it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And in studio live, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? I'm doing well this morning, although I could stand some dry. You could stand some what? Some dry. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the weather, but when it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. We typically take the first turn with Pop. And Pop, do you have a shout-out? Serious shout-out inflation this morning because I have three shout-outs. Three, three shouts-out. Shout Attorneys one. General and shouts-out. Go ahead. I'm shouting out for Terrica Buckner who is the new owner of the Hawthorne Auto Clinic in Portland, Oregon. She is one of about 24 female auto mechanics in the Portland metro area. She's been working there for years, and the owners have decided to retire, and she's bought it. And she's now the boss with 10 mechanics working for her. I think that is wonderful. Second, I want to shout out for Arlene Schnitzer who has given $10 million to the Portland Art Museum. But I want to shout out for Arlene, not just for the 10 mil that she's given now, but for her history, starting with her little boutique store years ago, supporting Portland artists, which has had just a marvelous effect on the art scene in Portland, Oregon. And last, I want to shout out for Noor Alexandria Abukaram, a Sylvania, Eastern Ohio high school student who ran a record cross country and was disqualified because she wore the hijab, the Muslim head, head scarf that her religion required, and who has started a project called Let Noor Run, which is starting tomorrow, which is not just for to protect Muslims to be able to wear their clothes when they're competing in sports, but African Americans who are disqualified because of their hairstyle, whatever, across the board. Just a wonderful thing she's starting. I shout out for Noor. Well, that lead story is an obvious one. The President obvious of the United one. States is on trial in the U.S. Senate. The Republican Party is on trial in the Court of Public Opinion and I can across sum, the country. I can sum it up with one quote. Okay. Senator Pat Toomey, who said, There's, I heard nothing new. And this was after Pat Toomey voted to deny the right to present witnesses that had been refused to appear, documents that had been refused to produce, and he said, I heard nothing new, because they're not wanting to hear anything new, and it is just absolutely despicable. The United States did start the impeachment trial for Donald J. Trump on Wednesday. Impeachment managers will have 24 hours over three days to present their arguments, after which Trump's lawyers will have 24 hours to present 
their defense. Senators must sit in silence for the whole process and submit all questions in writing, although some apparently were, one maybe was playing a crossword puzzle, some were going to the cloakroom, but roughly speaking, some of them showed up with new Apple Watches, but I don't think the primary story is about the cloakroom or a crossword puzzle or the Apple Watches. The trial is presided over by Chief Justice John Roberts. The big line, the big word, uh, by Adam Schiff is that the accusation of Donald Trump is to cheat in the 2020 election. The lead House impeachment manager, Adam Schiff, a state representative from California, accused Donald Trump of trying to cheat in the 2020 election by withholding aid to Ukraine in an attempt to pressure the country's president to investigate political rival Joe Biden. Here is Adam Schiff. The House did not take this extraordinarily, extraordinary step lightly. As we will discuss, impeachment exists for cases in which the conduct of the president rises beyond mere policies, disputes to be decided otherwise and without urgency at the ballot box. Instead, we are here today to consider a much more grave matter, and that is an attempt to use the powers of the presidency to cheat in an election. For precisely this reason, the president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won. Trump confirmed that he withheld military aid to Ukraine in September, claimed that he did so in order to, for various reasons, in order, I don't know, to force other European nations to contribute. He's just a good fundraiser. Dad, did you learn anything new during the during Adam Schiff's presentation, or is there anything you were reminded of? Anything that there you said? All kinds of stuff that I'm reminded of. Go but on. Really, because I followed the impeachment proceedings quite closely, there really hasn't anything. Nothing new has appeared because the Republicans are refusing to allow anything new. It, yeah, I. I and this is really, really serious because what they are doing, they are acquiescing in the elevation of the President of the United States to a potentate, to a potentate who can do whatever he chooses without any fear of retribution. And, and it's just not okay. The uh, evidence that was brought up, evidence of wrongdoing where President Trump is hiding in plain sight, said Akeem Jeffries, one of the impeachment managers. Jason Crow, another manager, pointed out just the night before, new relevant emails from the Office of Management and Budget had been released capturing conversations about the suspended military aid to Ukraine. Uh, if the president's lawyers contest any of the facts I'm talking about, you should demand to see the full record, said Crow. Dad, what can you tell us about uh, what you anticipate hearing today, uh, where you think? I, I heard glowing reports on, on Schiff's performance, on the House manager's performance. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? Yes. Looking backwards, and what do you anticipate looking forward? Yes, and looking forward, we are going to hear the scurrilous and the lies the, the one of one of the in, in their their brief comments in their in their opening statements one of the president's lawyers said that in the impeachment proceedings the defenders of the president namely the republican members of the house committees had not been allowed to cross-examine, and that was just simply a lie, which Schiff 
did not use the word lie, he, but he did say they were mistaken. They're not mistaken. They are lying. I've got a question, and I want to start. Actually, I want to play one clip, Justice Roberts admonishing the, uh, the members for some tense exchanges uh, during the hearing in order to establish rules for the trial. I want to play that. But then I want to get a little bit into the politics of this. And I don't just mean the presidential politics of this, but why don't we play the Justice Roberts clip? I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, in the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging, and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that highest standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. Dad, the world's greatest liberative body, does it deserve that title any longer? No. How come? <laughs> because of the... Because it's not deliberating? It's not. That's one thing. It's not deliberating. Some, over 200 bills are sitting sitting on the majority leader's desk or some, actually probably in his lower file cabinet, not even allowed to be considered by the Senate. The Senate, uh, up until under his leadership, as long as Obama was president, would not consider the judges that Obama proposed. The, he has told his sergeant-at-arms, and the sergeant-at-arms of the Senate is now not allowing journalists to interview senators in the corridors. The corridors is one of the key places where we have access to members of Congress, and nope, not right now. They're not allowed. PolitiFact put together some takeaways from the hearing, including multiple witnesses confirmed the existence of a distinct diplomatic channel directed by presidential lawyer Rudy Giuliani. Meanwhile, there are growing rumors about investigations of Giuliani by the Southern District of New York and more and more commentary about the odd relationship between uh, Giuliani and Donald Trump. Uh, Sondland testified that top officials were in the loop on the Giuliani-led channel. Several witnesses testified that they did perceive a quid pro quo. This still from PolitiFact. Uh, the information in the whistleblower report has been largely upheld in public testimony. I'm quoting all of this. Witnesses agreed that the theory being circulated by Trump's allies that Ukraine rather than Russia meddled in the 2016 election is simply not true. And six... Several witnesses said they did not see anything nefarious in the after-the-fact handling of the documentation of the Trump-Zelensky phone call. Those are key findings from PolitiFact. That question I've got on the facts. So on the facts, there is, do we anticipate that there will be? I guess we do now anticipate that the Alan Dershowitz defense will not be the only defense. The Alan Dershowitz defense is, well, we don't need witnesses, really, because the question is not whether or not this stuff happened. The question is whether or not it rises to the level of impeachable defense. And I, Alan Dershowitz, uh, after uh, my you know strange relationship with Jeff Epstein and my strange relationship <laughs> uh, with my wife's death and my strange relationship with Donald Trump, have have decided that uh, that that it does not rise the, to the level of an impeachable defense. 
Then there, but there is the other set of questions. It's like, no, no, we did nothing wrong. The call was perfect. Uh, we anticipate both arguments when the Republicans have their sure, turn. Sure, they'll make both arguments, and and they they will decline even to notice that those are diametrically opposed. The, uh, the question I had that I, I didn't do it, but if I did it, it's okay. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, here is the here is the question that occurred to me. Now, most of the analysis is like, well, this trial has a somewhat predictable result. Uh, at least it is hard to fathom that there will be 20 Republicans with 90% of Republicans backing the president being against impeachment removal, or at least against removal. Because those 90% are Don't getting, have facts. They're getting all of their information from Fox News. That it is just, it is hard for me to conceive there's going to be 20 Republicans that go south on the president, particularly without any new witnesses, without any new facts, and without any new charges. Right? You and I have talked about a lot of times that to me the president ought to be uh, impeached based on a pattern, a pattern of exactly. obstruction of justice, a pattern of corruption, uh, a pattern of abuse of power, of which these are the, the facts that Adam Schiff and the House managers are dealing with are the most obvious, most recent, most recently proven set of facts, but not the only instances in the pattern, uh, that we kind of know the result, but there's still some questions. There is some question about whether there will be four senators. Right now, I don't know, does it seem like there's going to be four senators that vote for new witnesses? They, there's no rumblings of them. No rumblings. Uh, but the other is what the vote count's going to be. And it made me think about, so people have wondered about Kirsten Sinema, who fancies herself a progressive, excuse me, a centrist. Uh, their rumblings about uh, Cory Gardner and Susan Collins, would they, uh, how will they vote? Uh, will they vote to impeach the president, to remove the president? I'm not guessing that they will. Uh, there are there the one though that I really wonder. There's questions about Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin though just won re-election, so he doesn't actually have direct political pressure. The question I have is Doug Jones. Doug Jones has direct political pressure. Doug Jones is up now in a state that votes for Trump strongly. That if he remembers, uh, it was Claire McCaskill who was who voted uh, against the most recent Supreme Court justice appointment, and did so in a show of, in her own words, in a show of political courage. I don't know. She said, "I'm being courageous," but she said, "This listen, I know this isn't going to be great for me politically, but I've got to. This guy should not be Kavanaugh should not be but on the Supreme Court." But she did the right thing, uh, and she lost the election. And those things are linked. And for every, you know, for every, uh, you know, good-hearted lefty who says, no, no, that is, if you just show your lefty courage, you'll win elections. She lost because yeah. in significant part because of that. If you were advising Doug Jones and you and, and you are you, you're not like playing some role. You're not you're, you have your politics. You have your morality. What would you want Doug Jones to do? Now, you know that. It, Doug Jones's vote isn't going to bring with him. Might not bring. Might not bring Kirsten, Kirsten Cinema with him. Might not bring Joe Manchin with him. Sure as heck isn't going to bring twenty Republicans with him. What would you advise Doug Jones to do? Call in <laughs> sick. Wow, it's hard, right? I, we, well, it, very often in our punditry. Very often our punditry. I we, will tell we you, pound I, the table with our own certitude. But I'm not. I, I think that this stuff is hard. I will tell you what I would hope I would do if I were Doug Jones. 
I would hope that I would be prepared to go to my constituents and say, here are the reasons that I voted as I did, and I'm about to give you some facts, which because you are getting your information from Rush Limbaugh and from Sean Hannity and from Ingraham and from Tucker Carlson, you haven't heard and these are the reasons that I did it. But they won't hear that either because they'll only be getting the information from the folks uh, you just said. But but I would I would be flogging every single group I could where I could actually look them in the face yeah. and tell them yeah. and hope hope that it might work. But if I were simply thinking in terms of Senate votes, that's a tough one. Yeah. And, and this is the case. Like, I think there is, like, for those who think this is an easy moral or easy uh, policy choice, I don't agree. I, I think that if Doug Jones were to vote to acquit the president, I, can I be mad at him? I guess at some level I can, because I, if you really say that uh, manipulating international affairs in order, to, uh, in order to benefit one's own election isn't a big deal, if you either say it doesn't happen, you're just you're lying to yourself and you're lying to the country, you're lying to everybody. You can't do that. And then if you say that it doesn't rise to the level of impeachable offense, I guess that's the real question here, right? I mean, that's that most of the punditry is about, ah, oh, will there be three? Will there be four votes for witnesses? Will there be 20 votes? What's going to happen? What are the rules going to be? But to me, I guess the real, uh, the real question that I want us to be, if we could be behind a Rawlsian veil of ignorance— if we weren't members of political parties, if we didn't actually, if we weren't sure whether he rooted for or rooted against this particular president, how sure can we be that we would say that this particular instance would be, this episode, is the kind of thing that should remove a president? And I actually have a dividing line. I believe that if the only thing that Trump was withholding was a visit to the White House mm -hmm. that it would not rise to an impeachable defense. It would be despicable, but nonetheless, if you're saying, I, I'm not going to take time to talk to someone who is not willing to help me in my election, even though my asking that almost certainly breaks the law. Mm -hmm. But when he says nearly $400 million of military aid that Congress has approved and which is needed to protect against attacks by one of our most significant global adversaries. He says, you're not going to get that unless you do it. Hey, that just crosses the line. Well, Dad, what do you think that hedge fund managers and investment managers are saying is the number one risk to the global markets? Well, and I'll I, take any, I'll take any of the top three. You can guess any of the top three. One of them should be easy because it's the one that last year was the number one concern. Well, I would just say I, I don't know what the top three are, but I would say that probably the the biggest hedge fund alive has decided that global warming and climate change is so significant that they're going to get out of the fossil fuel business, which sounds to me of some significance. I, I, I was going to use that as a straw next Monday, but now I won't. 
the uh, climate change, I would say, has greater gravity than any of the things I'm going to say. And this is a short-term prediction, right? This is like what, what will actually pop the bond market, what will actually pop the bubble of the stock market, will actually impact the potentiality of, uh, is that even a word? People say it, I guess I just did too, of a recession. The, uh, the number one, according to fund managers surveyed by Bank of America, uh, the biggest tail risk to 29% of the managers surveyed is in fact, according, again, this is not, this is just according to the fund managers, is the 2020 election. And you know that I have thought that there is, that, that I do worry that Atlas might shrug. I do worry that there is a, uh, that, that if a Democrat is elected, that that Democrat will get similar treatment that Jimmy Carter got with trying to freeze them out, trying to trying to push for the rising of interest rates. Yep, the trying Fed, to, the Fed you know, kicks interest rates up to twenty three percent. Yeah, with with people uh, with with conservatives getting nervous and selling off, you know, selling off stocks, and finally, and that is one uh, predicting this stuff. You know, I, I thought the stock market was overvalued all year. Uh, I, I would think that student debt would ought to be up there somewhere. Number two is still the China deal, and number three is the popping of the bubble of the global bond market. I mean, the global bond market is so ridiculous because people are getting bonds that you know approaching zero percent, and and there's still a risk. Jamie Dimon came out and said there's a risk of negative that his big fear is negative interest rates. Meanwhile, District Columbia has filed suit against the inaugural committee for grossly overpaying at the Trump Hotel. It alleges the inaugural committee used funds from the nonprofit to enrich the Trump family by overpaying for event space. I can't imagine that's true. The committee was not legally allowed to use any portion of its funds to be spent in a way that are designed to benefit private persons or companies, according to the lawsuit. The company spent over a million dollars for use of the hotel space. That's pretty good. That's a nice hotel. 170000 bucks a night. That's pretty good. Pretty good. And they didn't use them. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what they didn't even use those rooms? Doing? I didn't catch that part of the story. I didn't oh. know they didn't use the rooms. Because <laughs> even if they were five hundred dollars a night, that's three hundred and forty rooms. <laughs> and you'd figure, you know, you're not gonna. I mean, maybe you'll miscount. You know, but you figure if they're only two hundred fifty bucks a night, then oh. that's you know, six hundred eighty rooms. You're gonna miscount by six hundred eighty. And this uh, is this, this is draining the swamp. Donald Trump has hinted at changes the travel ban to include more countries: Belarus, Eritrea, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Myanmar, Nigeria, Sudan, and Tanzania. I think and I what got. What do um, all those have in common? Uh, they're not Norway. <laughs> no, and they're not Christian. Yeah. <laughs> travel ban was one of Trump's first executive orders. The high court upheld his third version after he added Venezuela and North Korea to the list to assuage calls of being called Islamic focused. No, no, it's don't worry. Also North Korea, also Venezuela. Uh, Utah became the 19th state to ban conversion oh, therapy for minors. You're not going to do that to me. What do you mean? <laughs> if something's news, it's no long. It, it's like in the wind. It's not just the straw, man. It's like going on. So you, you're gonna have to you have to dig deep to find those straws. They did. Okay, since you've done it, Utah did become. Fortunately, I had two today, so I still have one. <laughs> Utah became the 19th state to ban conver- conversion therapy by order of the governor, but it is the first. The first 18 all did it by legislation. Yeah, Utah, the Senate declined to adopt a law banning conversion therapy, so the governor just went ahead and did it by executive That's order. That's an interesting executive order. And Based on what authority? 
That's that's how I suspect that a court is going to have an opportunity yeah. to rule on that. Yeah. I, I just think it is probably likely. On the authority of that stuff doesn't work, it's stupid and kind of evil? I mean, that's I mean, I mean he's wrong, but I don't courts, understand the authority. While we're talking about courts, I've just got a mess of court stuff that I just want a laundry list so, so we don't lose it. Because they are all, all of some significant. A lot of it local stuff, by the way, this being local Thursday, theoretically. Wyoming and Montana... Have are going to get to the Supreme Court to try to contest the refusal of Washington to allow the establishment of a coal export terminal at in Longview, Washington. Interesting what the Supreme Court will do about that. Locally, SB Tech, which is the contractor hired by the Oregon Lottery to run the system, is suing the state to prevent it allowing the Oregonian to have access to the contract between the state and the lottery. Contract is all supposed to be public. That's going to be a really interesting thing to see what happens. Jim Bernard, the leader of the commission for Clackamas County, who got the county to pay 20000 bucks of his legal fees defending against his ethics complaint, which, by the way, he was found to have violated ethics, has decided, well, he's going to have to pay those attorney's fees after all. The Supreme Court has told Flint, Michigan, that the Sixth Circuit's ruling allowing residents to sue the city for their conduct in polluting the water can go forward. That's of some significance. The Judge David Leith, Oregon Judge David Leith, has told Bev Clarno, the Secretary of State of Oregon, that she was wrong on measures 48 and 49, and those did not violate the constitutional prohibition against multiple subjects, and so those should be allowed to go on the ballot of some significance. Two cider riot defendants in Portland have pled guilty. There are three who are scheduled to go on trial in March. Felicia Gonzalez, an African-American woman who went to stay at the local downtown Portland residence inn and was told she had to sign a form promising not to have any parties, noticed that white people who were coming and registering that night were not asked to sign that form. She is filing suit against Marriott Resident Inn. I hope she gets a lot of money from them for that kind of behavior. And then last, not a court place yet, but ought to be, Emily should sue, Ellie James should sue U.S. Bank for firing her because she, on her own time and her, on her own nickel, outside the bank, went and helped a guy who didn't have money for his gas, gave $20 to Mark Eugenio because his paycheck had been screwed up. And they fired her saying, well, that had created a danger and that was not 
okay behavior. And all of our listeners, if you are a depositor or a client of the U.S. Bank, I really hope the next time you go into the bank, you tell them, shame, shame on you. Well, Dad, the United Kingdom has crossed the Brexit finish line now that a bill is ratified. I don't know, actually, I agree that they've crossed the finish line, but the bill now, at least the bill has. No, what, what's happened is that they have crossed the starting line and they have no idea how tough it's going to be. The ratification of the bill now effectively ensures the United Kingdom will leave the European Union on January 31st or at least have that bill that, that, that is that's the, that, the, the That's rule. where the process is going to start. and. The withdrawal agreement negotiated with the European Union was rejected by the House of Lords, the Upper Chamber of Parliament, on Monday. The Lords sent legislation back to the House of Commons with a number of amendments, which makes me think not only of the Brexit, but hat tip to the New York Times, uh, also the Megxit. That there does seem that to put the to put the Brexit and the Meghan Markle uh, exit of Russian constabulary, Russian constabulary, British constabulary. See what I did there? Uh, British constabulary in uh, into some shared context. It is interesting to me that it's the same folks who were vote many. You know, huge overlap, huge Venn diagram overlap of the folks who voted for Brexit, who are also harassing Meghan Markle, who are also now lamenting the potential. Uh, a hit that the that Prince Andrew's exit from the royal family—not exactly exiting, quasi exit, quasi uh, exit from the royal family. Not Andrew Harry. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, Prince Harry. I get him. I, I don't think we should have a monarchy. <laughs> I take it actually as a red badge of courage, not a scarlet letter, if I get their names wrong. Uh, that it could be a hit to the monarchy, and and what I see this traditionalism, the racial identityism. That is essentially a, uh, I think, the kick of a wounded animal. I will cite my friend Caitlin Baggett, who said, Jeff, you got to understand that the rise of the matriarchy, that the growing multicultural uh, sharing of power in the world, I like to think about it as birthing a child, that it's going to happen, that, there, that we are going to move beyond the, uh, the degree of white supremacy that existed in the colonial era. And that is what is happening. And if you fight against it, it's going to, it's just, she, I have never given birth. She has given birth. She explained it this way. If you fight against it, it's going to be, it's going to make the labor more painful. And you just kind of have to let it happen. And if you, and if you move along with it, it can be more comfortable and more enjoyable and more, you know. So I, I, right now, what I see happening in the United Kingdom is they're still they're still ticked off that we beat them in the revolution. They're still mad that there's that the arc of history is bending towards justice and can't we still have kings and queens? No, we shouldn't have kings and queens anymore. And they lost India and they lost Pakistan and they lost South Africa. It's hard for me to even root for them in the World Cup. What when I when I was a little boy and we had a, the Mercator map on our wall, it was pink. And the reason it was pink was because that was the British Empire. It's not pink anymore. The U.N. has called for an investigation into the hacking of Jeff Bezos' phone by Saudi operatives. Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post, was brutally murdered. Reminder in 2018 is believed the crown prince was behind the killing. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is also the owner of the Washington Post. U.N. official statement said technical experts had established a medium to high confidence that Bezos was subjected to intrusive surveillance via hacking 
of his phone as a result of actions attributable to the WhatsApp account used by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. With the help of the National Enquirer, all of which was aimed at him because of the Post's reporting on the Khashoggi murder. And before the Khashoggi murder, support of Khashoggi, the hiring of Khashoggi, giving Khashoggi an outlet. We, Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, and I have, I, we don't cite Noam maybe enough, but Noam Chomsky has, and this is, this is in truth out, has made the, uh, connected the dots, made the case that uh, Donald Trump is consolidating right-wing leadership around the country. That that is the strain. That is what connects Steve Bannon, what he's been doing in Europe and in Great Britain. That is what connects Putin, even Putin. That's what uh, connects the authoritarian leaders consolidating right-wing leadership. And, and you don't mean around the country. You mean around, around the, the world. world. Excuse me, around the world. And that, and so, you know, I guess hat tip to Chomsky, but it makes me real nervous. This is yet another example of Donald Trump seeing that foreign governments can be tools of oppression. Domestic oppression can be tools of oligarchy, can be tools of autocracy. Uh, if you get your allies from far-flung places to attack your enemies here and abroad. And his presentation at Davos this last week and the treatment by his Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin of Greta Thunberg, who gave a, a very moving and insightful remarks to Davos, Mnuchin ridiculing her. And this is, by the way, the guy who has said, we shouldn't have to let anybody know how much DDT's travel has been costing us until after the 2020 election. This is the drain the swamp group, you understand. That's what we're talking about. China shut down public transportation in Wuhan as the coronavirus outbreak has spread. 17 people reported dead. Another 540 cases have been confirmed. And the Wuhan city government is taking steps to control the virus by shutting down transit in the city. Uh, the virus is believed to have come from illegally traded wildlife at a downtown animal market. The and there's WH great nervousness because the Lunar New Year, the Chinese New Year, rather, which is coming which produces more travel than any other event in the world every year. And they're scared this, that this bug, which apparently comes from animals and came, as near as we can tell, came out of a, a poultry market in Wuhan, looks like it can be transferred by humans. And now it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's Thursday, January 23rd. Cameron Witten has indeed entered the race for Metro Council. By the way, that story got broken here on X-Ray. Currently the director of the Q Center, founder of Brown Hope. The seat which represents northwest, northeast, and north Portland is currently held by Councilor Sam Chase, who announced his run for Portland City Council last week. And former state representative Mary Nolan is also running, as is local business leader Karen Spencer. 
Portland Art Museum received a $10 million donation this week from Arlene Schnitzer and Jordan Schnitzer. The donation is the largest ever donation to the museum. The gift is intended for use in the Connections campaign, which plans to link the museum's two buildings with the Mark Rothko Pavilion. The donation of the grant comes six months after the museum announced staff cutbacks, eliminating 14 positions from the museum's 244 full and part-time staff. Kaiser Permanente is chipping in $5 million, actually $5.1 million, to help Portlanders with disabilities find permanent supportive housing. The donation is helped is expected to help 300 of our elderly neighbors get housed this year. Other health care providers and foundations are joining in the effort as well. Jury selection began this week for the Jeremy Christian trial. Christian is accused of stabbing three men in a max train after being called out for using racial slurs. Two of the men died. The trial is set to begin on February 28th. Air travel could be a headache this fall if you don't plan ahead. That's because a regular Oregon driver's license won't be enough to get you through security starting October 1st. New TSA-approved IDs won't be available until July. If you want to avoid the chaos at DMV this summer, officials say you should consider renewing your passport. A mysterious viral infection that broke out in Asia last year has now arrived in Seattle. The Wuhan coronavirus has already caused nine deaths in China. This is the first confirmed case in the United States. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Dad, as of today, there are 13 candidates for the fish seat. For Nick Fish's seat. And the interesting thing about it is that every single one of them, as near as I can tell, has a title or a background that distinguishes them from from the typical thing of when you get that many candidates. Literally nobodies who are just looking for... for well, they're some, human beings, but you're yeah. saying there's multiple candidates in the race. There's more than one or two candidates in the race that if you read their thing, say, oh, that person could be in the... Exactly, that, that, exactly. It, it seems to me every one of the 13 has something to say that gives some credibility to his or her candidacy, which is amazing. And it lets you know that... It, so you now, now, Polo Catalani, uh, who has been uh, really involved in the new... Portlanders uh, project. Uh, Jack Kerfoot, a Vietnam veteran, former renewable energy consultant. Also, uh, what, what Dan Ryan uh, is running, who's raised a bunch of money, was it all hands raised? Uh, the uh, Tara Hurst, executive director of the Clean Energy Coalition Renew Oregon, uh, created a finance committee. With all of this, it now all the all the questioning about Sam Adams running against Chloe Daly, right? He just, right. It, it makes right. a lot more it sense. Very clear. There are a lot of folks. The Dan Ryan one, the Dan Ryan one, made it make more sense because they'll have some common fundraising relationships. And, and I would hope that this would encourage the legislature, and, and maybe we should even talk to the legislative candidate this morning, about doing ranked choice voting for primaries, for initial elections. Not, not general, not November, but because we've got 13 candidates. Now, what this means is that two, can, two of them are going to be approved, put on the ballot, just two. So that means that you could have two candidates, each of whom got 12%, no, each of whom got 10% of the vote. 
which would mean that 80% of the electorate voted against, did not vote for those two candidates, that those two candidates are going to be the no, ones... No, Crowded Field makes a, are, it, makes a great argument for star ballot, voting or some which, similar which kind means, of voting system. Which means that you could have the two least wanted candidates surviving. Now, if, if what you wanted to do was get out of the primary in this crowded field, this is not true when it's a crowded field in name only. It's not true when it's a crowded field as you, I don't say anybody's a literal yeah, we, nobody. We, we got two credible candidates and 10. And a bunch of folks who are like, right. it'd be fun to see their name on the ballot. Or but whatever. here you got people, all of whom have a potential we'll to have be some a friends who said you, who, I think you know this is your chance for your political career buddy right Nova newcomer whose name I didn't say I mean, she's been kicking around you know nonprofit work and politics for a long time she's she's a smart person uh, the she's the head of the local nonprofit friends of baseball she also formed a committee this week uh, or I guess last week the in, in this crowded field if you wanted to get out of the primary, there's a good case to be made that Donald Trump-style politics, I don't even necessarily mean ideology, but maybe including ideology, where you just do the most extreme stuff, could get you out. As you said, if you do stuff that gets 70% of the people saying, I don't really want you to be in the city council, but gets 30% of the people paying attention to you, you might have a chance to get out of the primary. Now, normally, that's losing strategy, even you know, losing strategy to two-round election because then you just get your tail kicked. But if there's two people who engage in that strategy and they both eke out enough votes to be the top two, then we could have, you know, I don't know, a chance, chance for crazy. Let the freak flag fly for the uh, first round. That's right. You no, know, there's a good case for star voting or for ranked choice voting. I hadn't connected those dots well enough, Pop. Thank you. The uh, uh, It also, I got a... I got a call. I won't say from whom and I won't say about whom, but a call from a friend saying, you know, so a friend of mine is a credible person. He's been thinking about running for office for a long time. I know they've been thinking about running for office for a long time. And they say, you know, they might want to uh, they might want to run. Uh, and they're thinking for, for city council, for city council Only to become number 14. <laughs> they would have been number 14. They might still be number 14. <laughs> and do you think that uh, and, and, you know, the person who called me was wondering, well, do you think they'd be better off running against uh, Chloe U. Daly, and I thought about it, and, they, and, they, and I actually, it took me a while to process, I'm a verbal processor, uh, it took me a while to process what I thought, and ultimately, I didn't give an ultimate conclusion, but what I, what I thought was, I think the question to ask is, does this person think that they'd be better than the other candidates running? And then, do they, because so much of the analysis, well, how would you fit into the race, and you know, could you get the endorsements, could you raise the money, and those are all legitimate questions. But to me, the ultimate question, the, the question that I hope would also be the initial question is, would I be better than that? Would I offer something to this city that is critically needed that somebody else isn't going to offer? And the second question is, will I be able to make that case? Will I be able to make that case to other people? That's sort of the viability question. And, and I'll tell you, the other thing that occurred to me is the candidate right now that is getting the freest ride, it's very interesting, is actually Carmen Rubio. That's the candidate that nobody's really fighting. I shouldn't say nobody. There's other people running. But... While you have a former mayor running against a current city council person, well, you have 13 people, varying levels of significant credibility, all running against each other. Right now, Carbon Rubio, people are forget. you know, I was in a conversation the, the other day. The Amanda Fritz vacancy. They're, they're like, wait, there's a flat-out vacant seat that's been going to be vacant for a while. I, and and it, it's understandable. I mean, you know, people, we to, to run against the first Latina, run against the first Latinx uh, commission that we could have, you know, I, I actually maybe appreciate uh, people's desire 
desire to hold that with significant respect. But when we say, yeah, there's four seats running, people need to count. It's like, oh, wait, wait four. Oh, wait, the mayor's counts, right? Oh, yeah, that's the mayor. Wait, what's the other one? Well, the other one's Carmen Ruby. The other one's Amanda Fritz's open seat. All right. So, and, and I think, you know, there's probably, there, there are four races that could be real. All right, Dad. Uh, just about to uh, just about to bring in Sarah Bustle, but we ought to do some election news in just a moment. Why don't we do election news? Where are you? Where do you want to start with election news, Pop? Well, election news. We've already talked about the thirteen profession counting. Uh, Deborah Scoggins, Scroggins, who is the Portland election officer, has ruled that it's okay for candidates for city council, including the mayor's mayor, to take more than $500 from contributors, even though the Portland ordinance says no, because of the court's ruling that that is unconstitutional. Interest, it will be interesting to see what will happen if the Supreme Court should later this year, probably just this spring, decides to overturn its previous ruling on the effect of the Oregon Constitution. Governor Kate Brown has told the legislature that she doesn't think there should be any finance campaign law in the short session starting next month, that they should wait until after they see what the initiative result is this fall to overturn, change the Constitution in that respect. And of course, that would also be, I would assume, until after the court has ruled, which might render the initiative moot. So that's that's a couple of election. Yeah, I want to talk about Obamacare. This is the biggest decision, uh, argue. Well, no, I guess I guess you got to say Roe also. This is one tied for one of the biggest decisions that the Supreme Court will be making. Uh, and we know this, and we don't know, you don't yet know the path that Roe might take. Uh, but we know that this case is before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denied a motion on Tuesday. I think it's a big deal. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, that would have moved the case along to uh, ask the courts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They denied that motion. Well, that kept the case alive, but it makes certain that it delays almost certainly any final reckoning until, until after, after the November. 2020 election. Yep. So the court might still hear the case, but it's unlikely to decide the case until 2021. I think it just did an enorm enormous favor, an enormous favor for Republicans, almost either way. I was thinking about this. Well, you know, maybe I think either way, had they ruled to uphold Obamacare, I actually think it still puts health care front and center. And it still affirms, as a conservative court, affirming the constitutionality of Obamacare. I still think that, on the margins, uh, isn't good for Republicans. It's certainly not good for Republicans on policy who want to leave you know, people without health care to the wolves. But also, certainly, if they had taken, what is it, 25 million people off of, yeah. off of their health care, the electoral impact of that in the 2020 election, I think, would be a tsunami. Absolutely. <coughs> whoever whoever thought that the Supreme Court does not play politics, this is the most political Supreme Court in my lifetime. Well, and my lifetime goes back, goes back to the court that told FDR he couldn't deal with the Depression. We probably ought to at least mention this, the documentary that came out, Hillary Clinton criticizing the campaign of uh, former rival Bernie Sanders 
uh, said that he was an ineffective U.S. senator, accomplished a little because nobody liked him. His response was, well, on a good day, my, so my, my wife likes me, so let's clear the air on that one. Uh, the uh, Twitter and social media weighed in. It started rehashing the 2016 election, which I don't much want to do here. Uh, the Virginia Senate has voted to eliminate Lee Jackson Day, creating a new election day holiday. The Virginia Senate on Tuesday voted to scrap a state holiday honoring two Confederate generals and creating a new holiday on Election Day. The Senate passed the holiday measure with limited debate. The bill now heads to the House. The Election Day is a public holiday in some states, including Delaware, Hawaii, Kentucky, Louisiana, Montana, New Jersey, New York, West Virginia, the territory of Puerto Rico. Some other states require that workers be permitted to take time off. California Election Code Section 14,000 provides that employees otherwise unable to vote must be allowed two hours off with pay at the beginning or the end of a shift. A federal holiday democracy day to coincide with Election Day has been proposed. I am in favor of democracy day. It sounds fantastic. Imagine all of the sales on sheets, all of the uh, flatware, you know, all of the things you could get. I'm sure Amazon, there'd be something. Macy's, uh, if Macy's still exists, other movements on the IT and automotive industries encourage employers to voluntarily give, voluntarily, excuse me, give their employees paid time off on election day. And that's something that every state ought to do, or maybe even better, we just should move election day to a Saturday. It's a good question. I, I like I better like the idea of a weekday with the day off. Yeah, so and I, I even like better I the one that was in the Atlantic back in the day. It seems like yesterday, but now I'm realizing it was two decades ago. Uh, that was arguing for it to be Veterans Day, move election day to Veterans Day, and have it be on a Tuesday. Uh, was so that still like still have it on a day that um, that is not it's not people just don't take a long weekend and leave town. Right. But it's still in the day to day. Still when people are, when they're ready to get in the, up in the morning, their transportation network is working, etc. And, and on Monday, you remind remember you have the day off tomorrow. Why do I have the day off tomorrow? Because you're supposed to vote, dummy. Oh yeah. Right. I'm supposed to vote. Right. Maybe I better do that. Although, although if you had it on a three-day weekend, it may be the maybe the people who like go to Davos, like maybe, you know, maybe like the people who go, you know, like fancy vacations and such. Maybe they maybe that impact their voting. So maybe it wouldn't all be bad. Uh, the endorsement game is heating up. Five thirty-eight. The website is offering information on the endorsements. Their methodology weighs endorsements based on local, state, and federal positions. The current standing has Biden at number one with 220 points. Senator Warden at number two with 81 points. Senator Sanders third with 55 points. And Klobuchar very close to Sanders with 50 points. And Mayor Pete Buttigieg, 36 points, including just one mayor, the mayor of Cincinnati, who, by the way, my law school class. You campaigned for him. I did. I lived in his house. <laughs> I slept in the next room from his parents. Not Pete Buttigieg, but, you know, John Cranley, mayor of Cincinnati. As of today, we talked about uh, we talked about the Nick Fish that we talked about the Nick Fish race. Dad, anything else you got on election news? No, because don't we have a candidate we, sitting in the wings? We do indeed. Let's shuffle the studio to be ready for that. We'll be right back in a moment with Saren Bustle, candidate for the state house. You are listening to X-ray Radio Shores. Portland's District 33 covers everything from the Pearl District out to Bethany. Is that the same representative for almost eighteen, for almost twenty years, almost two decades? Now there is a new face, Saren Bustle, running as a Democrat for District 
33, one of a bunch of legislative races, including legislative primaries that are up right now, and we're going to try to cover all of them. Saren Bussell, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Who are you and why are you running? Well, as you mentioned, I'm Saren Bussell. I'm a geologist. I'm a dog mom. I'm a union member, and I'm running for House District 33, as you mentioned. And I am running because, frankly, I'm pretty angry. I'm angry at our leaders at the state level for not putting racial justice and social justice first in everything that they do, and I think we need to change that. Mitch Greenlick has been in office since 2002. What's the state of play with the race? So there are f- currently four people who have filed to run, and uh, I'm one of those four. And we're all, you know, giving it a good go and fundraising and door knocking. And I'm excited about talking to voters in Northwest Portland and talking to them about campaign finance reform and health care and housing for all and climate justice. In a Democratic primary, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of unanimous, right? I mean, there ain't, ain't to be nobody who says, you know what we really need in Northwest Portland? A bunch more guns. It's, it's sort of unlike, you know what we really need is to make sure we, uh, we, we, need, we need to bring back conversion therapy, right? These are not, you know, these right. are not the issues. Uh, there is an issue of how one differentiates themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone can do that with name familiarity. Someone can do that with greater fundraising. Someone can do it with more vigorous campaigning. You, some, and sometimes you can do that on positions, on way things you right. bring. Where do you think, as you now see some of the candidates, where do you think some of the differentials lie among the candidates? Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of folks will notice a lot of similarities with us in terms of our educational backgrounds or professional backgrounds or experience working in policy. But for myself, I think my position is that I am the furthest left, most progressive candidate. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. I do support Bernie Sanders. Go Bernie. And, um, you know, I believe in things like making sure that uh, sex work is legalized, that we decriminalize drug use, that we reform our prison system. And, you know, I want to make sure that we get money out of politics because I think when we break it down, it's a racial justice issue. We know that communities of color have had less, historically less um, access to intergenerational wealth and community wealth. And we need to make sure that those barriers are taken down so that people can access government and run for office. And when people are in office, they are supported to be there with a living wage salary. Let's talk about campaign finance reform uh, for a moment. Obviously, you, you just triggered me. Uh, the uh, Our current mayor is taking large contributions. Our, to back up a little bit from there, our city, with 87% of the mm-hmm. 87.4 maybe percent of the vote, voted to limit contributions in city council races right. uh, to a significantly lower level. And the mayor said, ah, well, because of a similar thing, because the court said that uh, Anson Scalia's opinion of freedom of speech includes money and therefore it should be unlimited. I don't need to abide by this. What would you say to the mayor? Do you think the mayor made the right decision to, you know, take five and ten grand checks or, or what would you have to say to him? That is a good question. I Well, personally, uh, I have taken a pledge since my kickoff on October 1st to only accept contributions of up to $500 from individuals and from PACs, and I'm not taking any corporate PAC money because I do believe that the voters have spoken, both in the city of Portland and in Multnomah County, that we should be getting money out of politics. And also, I'm also the on the commission, the Portland and Open and Accountable Elections Commission, which is the program to have 
par- public financing of elections for mayor, city councilor, and auditor positions in Portland. And I believe if the mayor wants to uh, live values about getting money out of politics, and he also believes in making sure that those barriers are lowered for folks, then he should abide by those limits as well. And I got to say, I was disappointed by the auditor's decision. And um, I, I do believe that we should be abiding by those $500 contribution limits. Pearl District. Bethany, what's the reaction in the Pearl District to a DSA member running for the state house? <laughs> when you go door to door and say, hey, what, you know, what comes to the reaction? Yeah. You get? And by the way, Dad, you got questions. Feel free to chime in. Pop's with us as well. <laughs> He's in the other studio. Hello. So, so I, um, I get the sense, well, first of all, I believe that overall, our, whether we're talking to school board members or city councilors or county commissioners or folks at the state level, I think we are underestimating how liberal the electorate is. And so when I'm talking to folks on the doors and I tell them that I want to smash the patriarchy and overturn systems of oppression and tax the rich, people are like, yeah, right on. <laughs> Not away. So, yeah. All from the Oregon legislature. That's <laughs> the Oregon. I guess the Oregon legislature is, you know, smashing the patriarchy. It's actually now run essentially by uh, run by a, a women leadership team. Uh, what do you think, Dad? You got questions for this witness? Go ahead. <laughs> I do. First question. You are a DSA person. DSA, as I understand it right this minute, I'm not sure is even a registered political party in Oregon. Are you actually a registered Democrat? I am a registered Democrat. And to be clear, I have not been endorsed by DSA. I just want to make that distinction clear. I personally am a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Okay. Other question is the governor has said to the legislature that she doesn't think the legislature should try to do anything next month about campaign finance because we should wait to see what happens to the initiative that we hopefully will be voting on this fall to change the language in the Oregon Constitution, which has been the language which caused the Oregon Supreme Court to say there can be no limits on campaign financing in Oregon, which is a real problem. And the Supreme Court also is going to be reconsidering or possibly reconsidering that decision. Do you think, understanding you're not going to be there to vote, but if you were there, would you be agreeing with the governor that we should wait until next January, or do you think the the legislature should try to do something in the short session? So I don't think it hurts to try, first of all. And having I was formerly chief of staff to State Senator Jeff Golden and really honored to be able to work with him on SJR 18, which, as you mentioned, is the constitutional referral that will be on the ballot in November to allow um, voters to decide whether the legislature can regulate campaign finance. And so that was a huge victory. And but but when you go from infinity to something, a lot of negotiations are going to have to take place in terms of what those limits will be. And there are a lot of stakeholders that are going to need to be at the table. And so while while I believe the governor can 
come out and say what her opinion is one way or the other. I think it's a, a conversation that should be had, and I don't see any reason why the conversation can't at least be started during the short session involving those stakeholder groups and community groups, um, you know, organizations like Common Cause and Osberg and unions and folks that need to be at the table to help determine what those regulations are going to be. If you found any difference betwixt you and the other candidates on the issue of campaign finance? That's a good question. Um, we haven't, no one's taken any kind of sure. personal, you know, uh, publicly stated pledge or. So you're, the you know. only one who's, you're the <laughs> as, only one who's self limiting uh, your contributions. As far as I know, I, I just want to be clear I have not asked the other candidates to take a pledge, whatever they, you know, because we are in a state of unlimited campaign contributions. I think everyone has to do what's personally right for them because that is what the law says. There aren't limits in place. Those are the self-imposed limits that I've chosen to take, and I have not asked them specifically if there's other limitations that they're accepting. Are there uh, other... Actually, are, are you having debates? Because one of the things I find really interesting about legislative primaries is they really matter, okay? Particularly in a district like yep. yours, whoever win this, whoever was winning this primary is going to be in the legislature. Right. They're not going to be beaten by a Republican. So they really matter. But in terms of press coverage, I mean, that's why we're doing this, mm -hmm. right? That's why I'm so grateful to, like, X-Ray supporters so that we can actually ha get a – because there aren't there, there aren't that many – you don't do a whole lot of interviews, right? Like, right. not a whole lot of media interviews, not a right. whole lot of Oregonian stories, right? Right. Well, and, okay, so two things come to mind there. So regarding debates and forums, there will be – I know the Beaverton Chamber is going to be hosting one on the Of commerce. Uh, the Beaverton Chamber of Humanity or the Beaverton Correct. Chamber Correct. of Peace and Justice. I believe so, um, okay. hosted by um, – and also in partnership with North – West Natural, I believe, and PG, they're hosting something. And then, the and then I apologize, Brad Avakian reached out his organization out in Washington. Well, I don't know if it's his organization, but a, a, an organization. Now, he's, Washington County Forum. Yes, or it is. yes. Yeah. They'll be hosting a forum on April 6th. So, yes, there so will be, be events. Some, some forum. You haven't had them yet. You're no, still waiting correct. On those. We're still waiting on those. And then, as far as media, you know, outreach and, and attention goes, I mean, I just want to put a plug in for publicly financed, you know, nonprofit media because I I do believe that the corporatization, capitalization of our media causes folks to need to bring in those advertising dollars, which means bringing in eyeballs, which means in, then skewing towards more sensationalized stories, which then makes it how could turn that, into how would more you imagine that could ever happen? entertainment. If, if you were right, wouldn't <laughs> we have then, seen that happen you know, at the presidential level? And oh, then yeah, we right. see that on the presidential level. Thank you. The... Uh, Pop, go ahead. Something I would just point out, you're going to have those forums, and there will be dozens, maybe if you're lucky, as many as 100 at one of those forums. But you should tell your constituents, if they want to hear you on media, all they have to do is go to xray.fm and go to the archives to this morning's broadcast and they can hear you interviewed on the radio. What a great plug. I'll be sure to note that on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Thank Good you. Plug, Bob. Uh, got a text in. Portland is liberal except the way we drive. How much we drive? Are you going to agitate against the way more Portlanders drive? Uh, <laughs> and I don't mean it's like stop merging without blinking. Right, but no freeway expansion, for example. Uh, let, let, let's ask about that. How you feel? Rukai Adams just came out calling it a hustle. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Obviously, I I was railing against the boondoggle called the Columbia River Crossing years ago. Uh, where are you on the highway expansions? When it comes to any 
highway expansions, for the most part, I'm opposed because I think we, we know induced demand is a real thing, first of all. Second of all, climate change is also the most pressing issue of our time. And if we don't start investing in public transit to provide and free public transit. So shout out to Opal and the work that they're doing to um, make sure that there's free public transit for riders in Portland. Um, we have to make sure that people can get to work, that they can go get their groceries, that they can get to their homes, and that they can do it in a speedy, reliable, accessible way. And that is a great way to address climate change and reduce congestion by getting people out of their cars and onto public transit off the roads. If, uh, if people want to text in again, it's 971-220-5979. If you have a question, 971-220-5979. You're listening to X-Ray. We're talking to Sarah and Bustle candidate for House District 33. So definitely of interest to people who live on the west side of Portland. Also of interest to anybody who gives a darn about what's happening here in the state of Oregon. Pop, go ahead. Talking about the highways, how would you feel about having tolling, that is for drivers, based not just on the time of day, but on the number of people in the car? which could significantly raise carpooling and significantly diminish the number of cars on the road. Hmm. That's an interesting question. To be honest, no one else, no one has posed that to me this before. Is thing. <laughs> <Dad's> thing. <laughs> They've posed tolling. They've posed congestion pricing. Um, the honest answer is I haven't really given it much thought, but thank you for bringing it up, and I would love to have a conversation with you outside well, of let, this let, about it, or let, if you have suggestions. Let, <laughs> Dad, remind me, how do you imagine let's, counting? Let's, ha let's have that conversation briefly. <laughs> Did you hear okay. my question? This is an idea <laughs> which I came up with back probably about the time you were born, or maybe a little before you were born, when I was the executive director of the Pacific Northwest Regional Commission, and I commuted mostly on my bicycle, but sometimes in my car, to Vancouver, where my office was every day. And back in those days, the traffic north in the morning and south in the afternoon was very light, but the traffic towards Portland in the morning and away from Portland at night was pretty close to the way it is now. Right. And I looked at those poor suckers, and all of them were sitting in their cars by themselves. And I, I wanted, and had, had the Regional Commission survived, something that I really wanted to do back before we had computers and before we had social media, I wanted to hire 100 poll takers to interview all of those drivers, those commuting drivers, to find out where they lived and where they worked and what time they were, and to come up with a system that enabled them to communicate with each other and start carpooling. Well, of course, now you wouldn't have to have anybody out there taking information. Now all you'd have to do is have a social media system that allowed people to connect with each other. And if you had a toll system that was fairly expensive during rush hour if you were by yourself, significantly less expensive if you had somebody with you, and really a lot less expensive, maybe even free if you had two or more people with you, you could encourage people to find carpooling and instead of having 99 or 95% of those cars by one person, you could have maybe 60% of those cars with two or three persons, which would hugely and immediately 
drastically reduce the number of cars. And I just think that it is How would there you count to be done. <laughs> I tried to ask you before. I don't think you could. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you fine. I, I want to ask my question again. How would you count them? How would you count them? You'd, they, they would, you'd have a lane to go through. So just the operator at the, it would just do a one, two, three, four count of the yeah. people in the car? And yep. they'd go fast? Well, yeah. Honestly, so it's an interesting proposal, and I do think that fundamentally, first of all, we need to get more cars off the road. And imagine if instead of four people sitting in a car, there were 200 people sitting on a light rail train altogether. Um, I think that would even more significantly reduce the impact, the emissions impacts towards climate change. Um, and we do need to look at, you know, that last mile approach so that people, how do people get from the max stop or the bus stop to wherever they're going next? Um, so that's always an issue. And, but providing more transportation. How do you want to deal with that? How do you want to deal with the last mile? Scooters? What else you want to do? Oh, scooters. Oh my goodness. Um, I don't know about scooters. I'm all for scooters. I mean, <laughs> it, I, mean it, I do like, like scooters, more transportation options. Yeah. um, You know, that's another great question that I am not a transportation expert. I do. I do want to just make a quick plug in for, you know, for folks running for office. We don't know everything about everything. And um, that's also another issue that I know is a a challenge, but something that I'm not a urban planning or transportation. Yeah, because I think it's no, I think it's I think it's a significant deal. Right. I will say I myself, dad is not wanting me to talk. Go ahead, Pop. (laughs) Well, I just want to point out, I'm all in favor of buses, but something that we need to recognize as a reality, that in real life, the one of, if not the most important right that Americans insist upon is not the right to free speech, is not the right to religion, it is the right to go anywhere at any time by any method we choose. And Dad, that's are you rea- running for House District 33? That's the reality we have to well, re- recognize. I think, with. I think Dad's and, announcing his candidacy. And when you're talking about getting, when you're talking <laughs> about getting to work, work ultimately is a very finite location, and no matter how good the transit system you have is, you're not going to be able to stop at every single place of employment. You're, you, sure. you might be able to have a stop at, at one of the Intel places, but not all of the Intel places, for example, which are, has an awful lot of people commuting across. So so if you just did something that encouraged people to maximize the occupancy of their cars, you can do that really quick. And that doesn't say we shouldn't be working on all right, Bob, I want to yeah. make sure we can actually interview our candidate here. <laughs> so, okay. so the first thing that comes to mind is, one, I don't think individual car transportation is in the Constitution. Two, we have a culture that ha- in America that pushes people towards this individualism, and I think we could all use a little more collective, um, we're all in this together approach to things. Three, climate change is the most pressing issue of our time, and climate change, uh, we know polluters are negatively impacting low-income communities, communities of color, and Im- you know immigrant communities. It if climate change and transportation affect how people get to work, um, how they how they live their lives, and public transportation is an issue for folks to. It, I mean, I think the right is for workers. The rights that we need to uphold is for workers to be able to get to their jobs, for workers to be able to be happy and healthy and have health care and great education and a high standard of living, and the right that that 
there frankly isn't is for large corporations and extremely wealthy individuals to amass such vast amount of wealth that they're then able to tinker with our political system, which then affects transportation and climate change and healthcare and housing and all of those issues. And so, you know, you're right that we have the right to living our, our lives in the pursuit of happiness and freedom. Um, but I think that we have allowed a system to have certain winners and losers. And those winners right now are large corporations and corporate polluters and not individuals who are need to get to work every day and get their kids to school every day and have happy, healthy lives. Talking to Saren Bustle, candidate for House District 33 in Portland. Uh, Saren, if you were going to name the three, you can give me a different, you know, give us a different number if you want. If you're going to name the three biggest things that are going to be facing the legislature, and I don't mean, I don't mean Tina Kotek's three biggest okay. priorities for which she already has 32 votes counted. That's not what I mean. <laughs> right. I mean the stuff where Democrats might care about and also might disagree. Mm. Okay, what do you think the three biggest things the legislature is going to be facing? Well, what I would like them to be facing is progressive revenue reform. I think that our state really needs to look at all the 350 plus tax credits that are on the books, and those are primarily going to wealthy corporations and individuals and going through them one by one and making sure that those resources go back to the general fund for things like education and housing and mental health care and public transportation. So I would like them to look at pro progressive revenue reform. Um, I would also like them to look at campaign finance reform because those are two things that are capitalism, public you know, financing of elections, how people have access to elections, um, they are kind of tied together. And so making sure that we not only have public financing of elections, but also lower the overall amount of money in politics, I think is critically important. So I'd like them to look at that because that affects who is in the legislature and who is representing us. Um, so those to me are very core issues. I know that Obviously, housing is on the legislature's agenda, which is great. Um, and addressing What's the next climate change. Move? Forgive I me mean, a step on the climate change yeah, no, line. But no what, do you think, what do you think is the next move on housing? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that we get more funding for affordable housing. I personally, oh, it is such a, I wish, so I was thinking about this issue a lot um, because I think that people kind of want a quick answer to housing. And we yeah, know please, that Yeah, please, in 10 words or less. <laughs> right? So there's... There's housing affordability for folks who want to be able to buy houses and, and how do we get access to that wealth. And there's also renters issues and renter protections and rent stabilization. There's the houselessness issue and all the root causes of houselessness from, you know, from a huge health care health bill to mental illness and addiction treatment that's needed and, and trauma and domestic violence. And there's so many root causes to all of the housing, quote unquote, issues across the state. And I think we need to look at each of them individual and what their root causes are and also how to fund them appropriately because people need those services across the states and state and we need to pay for it. This might just amplify or it may prod you to say more. Just got a text in. Can you address the home? Homeless issue. What I new, what new ideas do you bring to this problem? End quote. <laughs> so I think we need to take a compassionate, empathetic approach when it comes to houselessness. <laughs> Again, there's not one root cause to houselessness, but I do know, and from folks that I've talked to at Street Roots or um, you know with with various 
service providers that people need permanent housing. People need permanent housing, they need affordable housing, and then they need the wraparound services like job training and health care and addiction treatment and recovery services and 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 great educate great schools. So we need to support each other and our community and invest in community so that we end the oh and end the cycle of houseless criminalizing houselessness. I mean I talk to folks who consider themselves to be fiscal conservatives, and there's nothing fiscally conservative about spending four times as much money to cycle people in and out of the prison system where they don't receive the health care and mental health care that they need. It's not restorative. It's not just. People need to be in affordable housing with wraparound services so that they can live happy, healthy, thriving lives. Let's talk just a little bit about the campaign. How much money at $500 a pop? You're the one candidate in this race at this point who's announced a public mm-hmm. limitation to your own fundraising, mm-hmm. who's trying to listen to what the voters of the county and city did. The, what are you hoping, excuse me, what, what do you, what, how much money at $500 a pop or, you know, $25 a pop do you think you'll be able to raise? What's your, what's your fundraising My goal, target? my fundraising goal is $85,000, yeah. and it means I just have to call, you know, you do, you do the math, <laughs> that many more people to hit that fundraising goal. And, and of course, I'm reaching out to various unions and organizations that have PACs to ask for their endorsement and support. And honestly, you know, to me, yes, money is important for getting your name out there, but just the basics apply, you know, having a having a campaign manager, having a treasurer, being able to buy walk literature and lawn signs, but mostly getting out there on the doors and talking to people face to face and finding out what issues people care about in the district. That's the most important thing to me. How many votes ballpark do you think it takes to win? Is it going to take to win that district? Oh, I'm not going to tell you that because that's How part of <laughs> That's your secret sauce. <laughs> I'm going to find out. How many we could look I mean how many yeah, votes you, would Mitch you get? Can, uh, you can you can look. You can look. Um you know that's well that's a that's a tough question to answer because he was he never running, had an opponent exactly, but, it would still, but so, I can still divide that in half yeah but I'm running against four people yeah. basically I've tried to just inflate the amount of doors and folks I need to talk to how so many that. people in the, how many voters in the district can you okay, at least tell us okay, that okay, just I can give tell people you an that. idea of the scope well, would you please share your campaign plan on the air <laughs> no I'm not going that far but what's the how many voters in the district so in in, for Democratic voters, because this is a Democratic primary, yeah. so sorry everyone else, please register to vote as a Democrat if you'd like to participate in our closed primary system, which, by the way, I support open primaries, so that's on the record now. Um, and uh, so there are about 21,000 Democratic voters in the district. The district comprises, as you've mentioned, some of Multnomah County and some of Washington County, and about 12,000 Democrats in Washington County, 9,000 so so in Multnomah got, County. Oh, nine, wait, wait, 12,000? 12, 12 in Washington, 9. So 21,000. Thousand Democrats. Correct. Correct. Okay. So if you got ten thousand in a in a, mm-hmm. in a crowded field, you're guaranteed to win. Right. And if you got five thousand, you at least credible. Right. And then the so then the your quick, magical you answer is math. somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. There. All right. That's helpful. <laughs> uh, what are the? By the way, you're listening to X-ray FM KXY Portland KQAC HD3 Portland 107.1 91.1 FM streaming online everywhere at X-ray.fm. Dad, you have a last question for this fine person. <laughs> I was told I shouldn't have any more questions. No, questions are good. <laughs> questions are good. Okay, well then, on the campaign finance issue, if the legislature decided to try to do something next month, is there a risk that they would do something which tried to to get along with the existing law that would then give them an excuse next January to say, well, we did something in February. We don't need to do anything really serious now. I think that's always the risk with any piece of legislation. I mean, we can look at Senate Bill 608, which was the 
renter reform bill and you know some people will say okay well clap our hands addressing housing in Oregon and move on to the next thing and you know whether it's campaign finance whether it's housing whether it's transportation I think there's always room for improvement but to your also to your point that's why we need to ask for it all and we we need to ask for everything that we that we want to achieve because we know that it's going to probably get pulled back to um, some sort of compromise which I'm not advocating for but that's why we can't start from a middle position you have to negotiate from the starting point of what what all do you want and more what do you feel about a baseball stadium at Lloyd Center at Lloyd Center? I yeah. thought it was being proposed over in Northwest. Yeah, as, as opposed to on the river? I, I think it's, well, the last conversation, last conversations I've had with people in the know say it can't really happen there because on the river because of transportation. Okay. Uh, like, how do you get there? I, I'm not, you know, and, but you, but it would work at Lloyd Center. But you, you can, if you want to say down on the, down on the North waterfront, that's fine too. I mean, as I, I as far as you know, sports or anything, I I don't I have no opinion about sports. Go um, for me, it could be a baseball stadium. Stadium. It could be a large industrial hemp growing operation. To That's me, the other option. <laughs> right? I don't know. To me, what we're getting at is um, what kind of public financing, what kind of public funds are going into these uh, operations? Um, are they getting subsidies? Are they getting tax breaks? And is that is or are we paying for you know millionaires and billionaires to accumulate even more wealth? And so Which I think it comes back in to favor of public finance. <laughs> I think yeah, and I think it comes back to also you know what's good for workers, what's good for our, what's good for is it going to provide good jobs? Um, and also I, I mean I really want to limit the amount of tax breaks that go to folks that will then just get enriched themselves. So we have to be care- we have to be careful. And I think if you talk to folks at the AFL-CIO, you know, they will be able to inform more about how those but negotiations the took place. They what, definitely what, want the jobs and we have to support working families, but I we really need to be careful. I'm not a fan of um, giving tax breaks and tax subsidies to basically make sure that and what if, what if we pull what if we pulled a green bay and they had the baseball team leagues belong of, to the city. Th- th- that's what we should do. The leagues have banned it ever since Green Bay did it. Uh, uh, it's now against the rules. Because I once... Well, I was it's against r- the rule in F- NFL. Is it against the rule in I the think MLB? All, I think all three sports is against the rules. Oh, okay. uh, anything I should have asked you that I didn't, Saren Bustle? I don't think so, but I'll just put a plug in. I'm the board chair for the Crag Law Center. They're an environmental legal aid nonprofit that um, was working towards making sure Nestle wasn't able to bottle public water in the gorge. They've been working on the Juliana versus U.S. climate case, and they're a great organization, and I'm proud to be on their board. Thank you so much for taking the time. Dad, you ought to get ready for the Straw in the Wind because it's just about time for a Straw in the Wind. Everybody, you're listening to X-Ray. We appreciate you so much doing that. I uh, want to say special thanks to Casey Colton and to Julie Oppenheimer and to Joy Palchik for working on preparing, making this show possible. Also want to say thanks to Morel Inc. Ink on anything, mail anywhere. You can find out more at morelinc.biz. And we appreciate every single X-Ray member who makes this possible. You heard it from Saren Bustle this morning. We've got to have a pro-democracy media if we're going to have a pro-democracy conversation, if we're going to have a democracy. But, Dad, I think it is time for a straw in the wind. Like a straw. Well, I had two straws in the wind. Now I have just one, but uh, they relate. And the one which we talked about already was that Utah became the 19th state 
to ban conversion therapy, but really interesting, Sean, the win, the Brigham Young University is hosting this year's United States Amateur Dance Championship. And in order to do that, they have had to agree to allow same-sex couples to compete. And that could be a very significant straw in the wind. Well, Saren, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Love you, Pop. We did it again. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to the team. Tomorrow we'll be back with News with Friends, Lillian Carebake, Hannah Rosenau, and so. folks at Kickstand Comedy, a brand-new minority retort with host Jason Lamb. Thank you for listening, and thank you, democracy.